Hello, and welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain academics and certain radio dramas into conversation. Today, we'll be looking at two audio-centric enterprises based on Marvel superheroes, namely the first five episodes of the 1975 Fantastic Four radio drama and the full 2018 audio drama Wolverine the Long Night. We have a lot to say, so let's get... Wait. Did you hear? You! Yes, it is I, the Radical. Radio is a dead medium, dude. Where's the picture? Where's the graphics? It's all just a bunch of noise, man. I'm going to stop you from talking about something so gnarly. By force! Look out! He's got a gun, and he's pointing it at my co-hosts, who are definitely in the same room as me. Oh no, he shot my co-host, Anna Papard. Uh, I'm Anna Papard, and I'm an <coughs> adjunct instructor at Brock University. <coughs> oh, the pain. Oh no, he shot my other co-host, Andrew DeMann. I'm Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University. Well, I'm not just going to sit here. Ah! Oh. Bogus, dude! You made me drop my gun! Well, I'll make you drop more than that! Ha-ha! Now I, the Radical, have the upper hand on you! And you, Michael Hancock, ugh, sessional ugh, researcher at the University of Waterloo, and ugh, Laurier University with a ugh, background in game studies and popular culture, you have been... Disarmed. Ah! And now that I've retrieved my gun and have cucked it thusly, any last words? Just this. You say that you, the radical, hate radio dramas, an audio-only medium. Well, I posit to you that you exist only through this audio medium. Your words, your actions, your poorly conceived conceit, all delivered only through audio and created by the audience's imagination. If you truly hate audio, then you should turn that hate inward and vanish, because it's only through audio that you exist. Oh no! Through your laser-focused logic, I'm fading away, and all of my crimes disappearing with me. Uncool, dude! Uncool! Dude! So, Anna, tell us about the Fantastic Four episode. can do my intro to this Fantastic Four thing. <clears throat> okay. The Fantastic Four radio drama aired in 1975 in five-minute daily segments and longer half-hour spots on various U.S. radio stations. It was produced by DJ and sound engineer Peter B. Lewis on a shoestring budget. According to a 2010 interview with Sean Cleefield, Lewis and his wife lost their house and went on food stamps as a result of the program being a financial disaster. Like many of Marvel's early licensing deals, the show happened in a bit of an accidental fashion. Here's the story in Lewis's words. In my day gig, I was a jingle engineer and mixer at a popular New York City studio, National Recording. Suddenly, through some light conversation and what you'd call a coincidence of God, I found myself talking with the wife of a songwriter who was working as a jingle singer on a gig I was doing. The wife, Ann Robinson, was in charge of licenses at Marvel Comics. She and her husband, singer-songwriter Tommy West, had heard and loved an earlier radio pilot I'd done, and she really loved the idea of the Marvel Comics radio series. And she could grant me the necessary license. She could also deliver Stan Lee. And she did. Indeed, Stan Lee is the narrator for the series, reading his own purple prose from the scripts of the original Fantastic Four comics he produced with Jack Kirby, supplemented with additional descriptions written by Lewis. Stories include the team's origin and their first encounters with the Mole Man, Doctor Doom, Namor, the Hulk, and the Super Scroll, among others. More fun trivia, according to Lewis, Lee was so self-conscious about his nasal voice, he brought five different nasal sprays with him to the recording sessions and ended up making himself quite ill by overusing them. Other voice talent on the series includes 
veteran voice actors Bob Maxwell as Mr. Fantastic, Cynthia Adler as the Invisible Girl, Jim Pappas as The Thing, Jerry Ter Hayden as Dr. Doom, and Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Yes, that Bill Murray. Murray was hired onto the project because both Lewis and promoter Bob Michelson had ties to the National Lampoon Radio Hour, a precursor to Saturday Night Live, on which Murray and several other future SNL and Second City alums cut their teeth. I believe Murray does multiple voices in the Fantastic Four show, but I wasn't able to find a detailed breakdown of exactly who does what. The show itself is interesting. The laconic Murray as the energetic torch is an undeniably strange yet endlessly amusing casting choice, and I was personally surprised by how listenable the overall production is. It's obvious that a lot of care went into making this show. That said, the directness of the adaptation, the fact it's literally, in most cases, simply Lee and the actors reading comic book scripts leaves something to be desired. These scripts were meant to go with Jack Kirby's artwork. Lee can put as much energy as he wants into lines extolling us to hear the incredible birth of the Fantasticar. It's better when Kirby draws it. Some of the voices are also questionable. Besides the obvious strangeness of Murray as the torch, every villain is given a very cartoony parody of Bela Lugosi-style Eastern European accent. I really couldn't reconcile this as a choice for the voices of Namor or the Puppet Master. More generally, it plays into stereotypes in ways that are a bit strange and uncomfortable, especially given how, by 1975, Marvel had moved quite a ways beyond the Cold War paranoia and nationalism that underpins some of the earliest FF stories. That said, it's a wacky piece of Marvel history that I think can prompt some productive discussions about adaptation, which I look forward to having with both of you today. Thank you, Anna. Andrew, could you tell us about Wolverine the Long Night? Uh, sure. Wolverine the Long Night is perhaps best described as a prestige Marvel podcast. If it were a comic book, and it is, technically, it would be printed on glossy paper and bound in hardcover with a holographic trading card included in the foil-wrapped outer shell. It was produced through an experimental partnership between podcast juggernaut Stitcher and comics juggernaut Marvel, as opposed to Marvel Comics juggernaut, who has indeed fought Wolverine many times. This podcast drew in both an elite writer and a big name actor by podcasting standards in the form of Richard Armitage. The story here is written by Benjamin Percy, an accomplished writer of both novels and comics, who is now winning praise for writing Logan in the pages of the Dawn of X X-Force title. The Long Night hit the digital airways in the fall of 2018 to pretty wide acclaim, with Percy offering a compelling and fresh take on one of Marvel's most overutilized characters. Where Logan has, for decades, sucked innocent creators into the temptation of an immediate visceral spectacle of, you know, viscera, Percy and team take a slow burn, almost cosmic horror-like approach to the surreality of everyone's favorite stabby Canadian. It's a Wolverine series with shockingly little Wolverine in it. Percy has stated in an interview that his desire was to remystify Logan by relegating him to the shadows. For me, this pays off in a big way and helps the story execute a compelling translation of Logan to an auditory format. The series is 10 episodes long, spawned a follow-up series, and a comics adaptation along the way, winning a healthy handful of podcasting accolades. Uh, the expectations on this series were just about as high as its ambition, and in the eyes of most people, it delivered, which is something I'm very eager to discuss with our panel on today's episode. Let's start off here with a discussion of what kind of backgrounds we have in terms of listeners to this sort of audio fiction. Uh, personally, I have some history with things like the Thrilling Adventure Hour, Welcome to Night Vale, generally things that are a little more comedy-based. Um, I don't really have any real experience with this kind of thing. I mean, I'm trying to even think of like something similar that I would have listened to. I mean, I remember listening to kind of radio plays and stuff when I was a kid more. Like I had those, you know, <laughs> I had those Disney records that were like the movies that had the animation from the movies printed on the records they were very beautiful and I used to listen to those and I we didn't have a VCR or anything growing up so I actually knew a lot of those movies only in audio format for many many years and that was probably the closest thing I can think to something like this I listen to podcasts but I usually just listen to sports podcasts and comedy podcasts and I like to listen to both to fall asleep at night so I uh 
when I tried to listen to the episodes of the Wolverine one before bed at night, and then like at least one of them ended with like a really gory like fight scene, and it woke me up, and it was very disturbing. So I stopped doing that and tried to listen to them on my daily walks instead. And um, one thing that I point out is that it was way better the Wolverine one, like on my headphones and on like my computer with my computer speakers, because it does have yeah. some interesting stereo mm-hmm. effects that I wasn't really aware of until I started listening to it with headphones on. So yeah, very little experience with this kind of thing. But how about you, Andrew? Um, I'm not much further ahead. I like I, I, Welcome to Night Vale. I enjoyed just like Michael, although I fell off pretty early in that run. And um, Wolverine the Long Night was uh, the only other really serial podcast I listened to. Um, when I was um, working way too much at way too many different schools, I, I had this really weird like efficiency kick. So I would often listen to um, uh, uh, books on tape, essentially, not actually on tape, but, you know, downloaded a lot on my commutes just so I could feel like I was, you know, doing something uh, and using every minute. So I have a lot of experience with that, but not really serialized to the same extent. Uh, although a lot of the sound design that you see in those things these days, at least with the more sort of um, elite titles, is very um, advanced uh, in similar ways. Um, but as I said, I, I think Wolverine the Long Night is just by far the largest audio serial production I've ever listened to. My uh, The story I like to tell about me and audiobooks is that my first audiobook was Northanger Abbey, and it took me about a week of listening to it before I realized it was on shuffle. <laughs> so I, I thought this is a weirdly postmodern take, but oh my no, God, not quite that so much. Funny. I feel like the first time I read Wuthering Heights as a teenager, I felt like it was on shuffle. I feel like you could just shuffle <laughs> that and not notice. Let's jump in with the adaptation question then. We talked a little bit about this in the respective intros. What do you think about the approach to adaptation as represented in these two very different examples? Well, should we start with Fantastic Four yeah, since it's the 100%. obviously mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously <laughs> not as good one? Um, which, you know, we we're talking about two things from very different times, adapting very different things. So like it's an apples and oranges comparison. But at the same time, as I mentioned in my intro, you know, the main complaint with the Fantastic Four one is just going to be that it is too much of a direct adaptation of the comics. I mean, <laughs> like voice talent aside, like whatever, like the casting choices are weird. There's no getting around that. But I mean, even just having the exact same dialogue, the exact same descriptions that you would have had in the comic where you had Mm -hmm. Jack Kirby's visuals accompanying it, it just doesn't work. I mean, I was enjoying it on the level of I was listening to it and finding it funny in part because I was like remembering the comics. I mean, you know, it's never a bad time to be reminded that the thing is actually Blackbeard in Marvel continuity. And that's amazing. (laughs) And I always love revisiting that story. But at the same time, I mean, how much enjoyment was I really getting out of this radio production version of it? And how much was I just remembering how funny that comic was and just sort of marveling at the novelty of it in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just the Bill Murray as the torch. It's just like, it's like (laughs) such like his laconic voice and the the torch's dialogue. Yes, it's so crazy. Like, it's just like, I I wish so much I could do an impression of it, but it's exactly, (laughs) if you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to at least check it out. And it is exactly what you think. It's just Bill Murray in a Bill Murray voice just being like, hey, lay off thing. It's just like amazing, the whole thing. So that is an attraction of it. In terms of adaptation, though, yeah, like, we should talk about the Wolverine one, I think, in terms of what it does well compared to something like the Fantastic Four radio drama. But I maybe will let you tackle that first, Andrew. The main thing for me with the Wolverine story is that it's built for audio, right? Exactly as you're saying. Um, Even the central conceits of the story are chosen because they would work well in an audio format. Um, Everything about it pushes towards that. Obviously, it's got a a greater sort of, I don't want to say budget because I don't know what their budget was, but I suspect pretty high. Mm -hmm. Um, But but like it's got a lot of more modern technology empowering the sound design. So I think they can do a lot cooler things. I know, Anna, you mentioned the, the stereo effects when you listen to it in headphones um, in order to create a sense of like spatial presence and stuff like that, where to me, the Fantastic Four one is really just Stan Lee reading his writing. And like, I had a visceral reaction to it. Not like just, you know, this is funny and this is silly. I, I did have that. But after a while, it's just, you get this sense of arrogance. Like, <laughs> how could you try to do this without Jack Kirby? You know what I mean? 
Like, like, why would you think this would work? Do you think so little of Kirby's contribution? And I know that's not what was happening at all. I mean, Michael gave us the origin story, um, but I just kept finding myself being mad at it for thinking it could do that without Jack Kirby. Yeah, we should tweet out the Sean Cleefield interview with the podcast because it's very mm-hmm. long and it's very detailed. And I had such a sympathy for the guy who made it talking about how much work he put into it and how yeah. hard it was to get made. Like he lost his house. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like it's really like a lot of work did go into this and everybody that worked on this production and like um, continued to sort of do voice work. And the guy who like mm-hmm. wrote and produced it and recorded it, like he's still working in sound design and like has had a very successful career. So it's like, not like it wasn't skilled, like it was, it's just that the project itself and the nature of the way that they were approaching it was fundamentally flawed Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah in a way exactly. that it would, it couldn't have been successful given the way that they were trying to do it. Yeah, I enjoyed it, but it was almost always with this uh, kind of, this is working surprisingly well for what it is. And it is like, especially in the beginning, at least very, like what Andrew was saying, that it felt very strongly like, wow, you're just going to take a whiteout to any sort of <laughs> influence or presence Jack Kirby had on there. The, like, yeah, like I just kept thinking about that, like here, the incredible fantastic car. It's <laughs> just like, you just have to stop and be, and then they, so like the, the, the Lewis who wrote the additional dialogue, he like added descriptive passages describing the car and stuff. Right. I mean, it's just the whole point of the fantastic car is the Jack Kirby design. It is uninteresting unless you have the Jack Kirby image yeah. of that ridiculous car flying through the Manhattan cityscape. That is the point of the fantastic car. It just does not translate to an audio medium. But the extra description too, it like points to the appropriation at work that it's Stan Lee who is now describing what Kirby made through the images. It's like even more of a, I am the, the sole author here. Yeah. Even if he did not write that script. But I mean, like, again, like, the only reason I'm like, I'm not trying to go soft on Lee, like, I mean, we know the history of Lee. And, you know, there's been a book about his legacy that came out that has been sort of controversial and interesting of late. But at the same time, like, the story that I kind of got from this podcast was that, like, it wasn't his initiative to make this thing. It was the initiative of other people. And then they invited him on to be the narrator. So I don't, as much as it's always got to be Lee building his legacy when he's involved in these types of projects, the decision, the decision to center him in this particular case, wasn't necessarily him. It was sort of people wanting to do that as a way to sell the podcast or not podcast, the radio drama. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, I'm only like, sort of just trying to be a little bit accurate with it but like at the same time you're definitely right about the erasure of kirby that's just it's part of the stanley legacy that that is happening constantly and making him the sole creator of marvel comics obviously that's going on and we know from the well various people writing on the history of marvel how invested lee was in well trying to basically expand into as many multimedia directions as he could yeah and yeah, right and, at this and time I mean, too yeah and i will note too that did, I mean, I'm sure you, you both picked up on this too, but one of the opening introductions of Stanley as the narrator within the show described him as the sole creator of the Marvel Universe. And then Lee has yep. this little bit where he like goes, ha well, anyway, right? So it's like he's, <laughs> he knows, right? And But mm-hmm. it's interesting because I'm like, well, who wrote that dialogue? And what was the exchange kind of <laughs> going on there to write that dialogue? Because, you know, he has the little sarcastic laugh and yet the dialogue's still there. Well, one thing I would say kind of as a way to create a parallel with the Fantastic Four argument we're, we're making here, that there is as a set of comics adaptation uh, of The Long Night, and it's bad. Oh, is there? I yeah. don't know. Yeah, no, they produced, a, I think it was a five-issue mini. Oh, um, well, there's the problem. Like, yeah, well, five yeah. issues is not enough. Isn't no, it, though? It's a very, because it's a very, but it's a very long and involved point. story, though, really. But, like, a lot of them are just empty red herrings. Yes, which... Yeah, that's that's really got me thinking now because I'm just like I was thinking that it was a very involved story, but it's not really. It's a lot of kind of atmosphere, the way you would expect from a radio drama that's relying on audio. Whereas right. if you adapted that into a comic book, it would just be like a lot of scenes of people walking around. And that's, just that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not great. Um, well, I think Michael hit on the thing that I thought was most interesting as a comparison point. Um, the idea that the the long night, the, I, I think you said it, that the the writer clearly really enjoyed the first season of 
um, um, what was it? True Detective. Yeah. And I feel that strongly. Which, yeah, it literally also features a uh, red herring that is a, basically a dive into more Lovecraftian di- directions that pan out to kind of nothing. No, they literally just jump off panel, but uh, sorry, calm. <laughs> they jump off a cliff and they're dead. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you both about the thing that I was thinking about while listening to the Wolverine podcast was how it fits into kind of the approach of sort of Marvel publishing production, whatever these days in general, but also this relates to the history of the superhero genre, like the argument that superheroes aren't a genre. And I don't really buy this argument, but people have made this argument is that they pilfer everything that they do from other genres. Therefore it's not unique in any way. It's just like a hodgepodge of other things. And that's true. Mm. But I think that that's true of every genre. So I don't know about that argument, but in terms of some of their 21st century productions, and I very much think something like WandaVision fits into this in terms of it being, it's this like relationship, suburban, deconstructive thing, but it's not necessarily doing those things as well as some other shows that do those things, except it has superheroes and Marvel is the production company. You know what I mean? And I just yeah, like, really. I had a little bit of a sense with the podcast. I was like, even though I'm not super familiar with this medium, I was like, I'm sure there are many other things like this. This one just happens to have Wolverine in it. And like, I don't know, I had a weird feeling about that because although I felt felt that it was really well done, I'm like, is this a case of we're just kind of getting a watered down version of something else with Wolverine in it? And this is kind of the sell? Because I mean, it wasn't a super great Wolverine story. I mean, you know, if I think about Wolverine's presence in the story, he didn't even necessarily have to be there. I mean, he's like yeah. not present for most <laughs> of the story. And so, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I was just wondering if you guys had any thoughts about that. I think... I had the opposite. Like I, I actually kind of saw it as a, a fun new take on the superhero genre, just by again decentralizing the superhero and treating it as almost like a magic realist component in an otherwise gritty reality. Until the epilogue, of course, <laughs> which undermined a lot of that for me. Um, but in the early episodes, I, I, I feel like it was doing that thing that we've talked about before with, with key comics works uh, about sort of accepting and viewing how strange a superhero would be and how alienating in reality. Um, But as I I think it lost touch with that in the end. I think like on the one hand, it it's a story that doesn't really need Wolverine in a lot of ways, but in terms of which superheroes, there's not a lot lot of other superheroes that would fit well into the spot Wolverine does play. Yeah. I mean, you could maybe replace him with a character like the Hulk, but even that I don't think quite hits the, when it goes more fully into the noir beats, Wolverine is a better fit for that than a character like the Hulk is. And yet when you think about what's fundamentally interesting about a character like Wolverine, is it his personality or is it his appearance? Because I mean, if he's just going to be sort of a hard boiled, character or whatever or he's going to be this like dirty harry style character or this death wish type character we already have characters like that what's interesting Mm -hmm. about him is that he's like a muscular hairy short guy with crazy hair and claws that come out of his hands (laughs) i mean like and that comes across visually more than in an audio medium i don't know i'm not trying to be like difficult or something it's just that Mm -hmm. i i'm just trying to figure out what my feeling is about whether I would want to see superheroes adapted this way. And I want to make a distinction too, that I'm not, I'm making a distinction here between, you know, adaptations for visually impaired readers or something, because that's, I think, very Mm -hmm. different. And there's a lot of different conversations that we can have around this, but this is just, and this obviously can appeal to anybody, right? But in terms of just this being a story about Wolverine, who's a character who's primarily a character that exists in visual culture, existing in this other medium. Well, I guess, I don't know, I guess that does end up being part of the same conversation because it's a conversation mm-hmm. about how do you adapt the visuality of this thing into an audio medium? Is that even a thing that's worth doing? If it is worth doing, yeah. why? And like, sort of, what are the motivations and what are the goals? It kind of comes back to our overarching question do superheroes fit this medium? That the Fantastic Four radio show is a very direct adaptation, but it kind of shows the limitations of telling a traditional superhero story in just a radio way. Um, I know Thrilling Adventure Hour has a long-running superhero segment, 
but it is very clearly modeled after the 60s Batman cartoon, not a comic book per se. I think for me, a lot of this, what Anna's asking comes down to Wolverine as an auditory presence. And I think he has one, right? The idea of like the growling borderline feral, the sound of the claws doing the schnicked, which is like the most famous thing about Wolverine is a sound effect. Uh, I, I think the anguish of like a, a vocal performance of someone who's doing that whole tired but noble thing that works. I, I think the violence, of course, surrounding Wolverine um, translates to the auditory format really, really well in, in a lot of ways. Like, like I think there's su- certain superheroes that this would work with. You guys mentioned Hulk. Like, that'd be a great one. You could hear the ground shaking and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and certain superheroes that it wouldn't work with at all. Storm would just be, you know, tinfoil sheets mm-hmm. shaking, um, <laughs> w- w- which would be less engaging. So I, I think Percy's pretty good here in my eyes uh, in creating an auditory presence for a character even though he's not in this thing very often when he is there i feel it and i really like that about it and i think the absence speaks to it as well like the sounds of alaska that you're getting like the the eagles in the background and the wide open spaces and the the blistering storms and waves and stuff like that Uh, and then that too connects to wolverine of course because wolverine is associated with this ridiculous lumberjack fantasy um that that kind of gets stereotypical in a lot of ways by the end of this thing, once again. Um, but I do think he has an auditory presence. And I, I think, I think they did a good job of bringing it out here. I and guess then, maybe Mike, I would ask though, like, does his presence exist because you have a prior familiarity of him that's grounded in the visual, or could you have replaced the Wolverine character here with any yeah. other generic grizzled, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, that's what, a is, great question. what is, what is the trope of this character? Like, I mean, it's, you know, that character, you know, it's like a samurai character, but it's also like a Western hero. Like, I mean, it's mm-hmm. any sort of character who is a violent character who keeps getting drawn into violence despite their, all their attempts to resist. I mean, to me, it's just that, like, it made Wolverine a less interesting character because if he's reduced to those generic tropes, then that's all he is. Whereas when you add the visual element to this character, that's when he becomes interesting. That's when he becomes different than, like, Shane or Dirty Harry or whatever. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I could answer that. That's a really good like, question. I, I think that I think that you're totally right, Andrew. That like about him being a character that works well in this medium and everything. It's just it's really hard talking about adaptation. I think when you are so used to characters in one medium, or you have so much familiarity with characters, because yeah, it is so easy to just be like, I know Wolverine. I know how he fits mm-hmm. into the story. But oh, like, exactly. if you're yeah, I don't know, and I don't know how I would approach it as someone who didn't know Wolverine. Well, on a commercial level, like Wolverine is one of the more obvious choices for a role like this, just because he's a character who doesn't have a official Marvel uh, cinematic or television presence, but still has enough cachet that like, if you said like, oh, I made a cable podcast, well, you could put cable in this role more or less, but like, even with the Deadpool movie, I don't think Cable has the cachet that Wolverine has. Well, right. yeah, he's Marvel Batman, so I mean, he's an obvious choice. Well, I think maybe expanding on what Anna was saying, um, I definitely think that this is an experience that is designed to be connected to your earlier experience as the character. Mm-hmm. Like, there, there's so much name dropping, and oh, was that maybe Sabretooth who did that? And this guy's name is Hudson. I know what that means. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like mm-hmm. it, it's it's really um, creating tension out of audience expectation of translation of iconic, you know, characters and properties. Uh, and I think that adds to the atmosphere. And I, I think, again, Percy does really well with that. Um, so, so to me, I don't, I don't think anyone who's never read a Wolverine comic or watched a Wolverine film would get the same experience listening from this podcast. I think it's definitely um, beholden uh, to the characters, other existences. Uh, and I think the fantastic four podcast, I don't, know that it's doing that i feel like it's trying to be its own thing and just sort of recreate the magic of the fantastic four but i could be wrong it could be i don't know who is listening to that without well i mean especially now like you don't (laughs) listen to that if you have no idea who the fantastic four are yeah yeah, interestingly, another little tidbit about the Fantastic Four one is that the original plan was to do it as a Silver Surfer one because, you know, it was kind of this, you know, hippie guy that wanted to do it. And that was the draw that it was going to be Silver Surfer, but they didn't think it was as marketable. So they did Fantastic mm. Four. Oh, that's the best story. <laughs> yeah, it it does say 
It does uh, remind us how far the Fantastic Four have fallen. <laughs> well, in terms of them being like the headlining property back in 1975 versus now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is strange that way with Fantastic Four. They just, I don't know. Fantastic Four is like the cult Marvel property where, you know, I, I have this real sense of I'm such a like Fantastic Four purist and like Lee Kirby Fantastic Four is the Marvel Universe. And if you don't understand that, you're like wrong. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, that's such a, you have to appreciate it in context and appreciate the camp value and appreciate it on the level that it wants you to appreciate it on. And it does struggle mm -hmm. sometimes to appeal to modern readers because I think of all the kind of 60s Marvel properties, it is the one that's most located in the 60s. And mm -hmm. that can be a problem in terms of adaptation. Like my idea for adapting, actually, it wasn't a Fantastic Four adaptation that I had an idea for. It was for a Namor movie and it was going to be set in the 1950s, like in the context <laughs> of him kind of, you know, it's the post-war era. He's trying to find his place in the world and kind of at war with the surface world and at war with the conservatism of 1950s culture. And there would be like a nuclear theme. It was going to be really, really good. But I think it had to be a period piece. And like, I would love to see a Fantastic Four period piece set in the 1960s. I think that would be excellent. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, one of the things the just rereading or rereading, listening to this, to the Fantastic Four radio cast is just how great even in this earliest form, how great a character the thing is. Yeah. Like for playing that line between monster and hero, he's just endlessly fascinating. Well, yeah, again, I just kept thinking about how much I like those original comics and so much of the, in those very early issues, there's such a dramatic conflict and fear of the thing and the volatile mm -hmm. personalities in the team. Like I remember, I really was remembering sort of Mr. Fantastic's dialogue, which is in the radio drama, like, what's happening to us? Like, why can't we get along? Like, we're trying to kill each other. This is really not okay. And it's really scary. Like, it is like the thing and the torch try to kill each other. They're worried that the thing is going to harm people or harm himself. And it's quite horrifying. I will say, too, that I was, like, unexpectedly moved by the hate monger story, revisiting it. And in a way that just makes you angry because it's just such a it's a story about resurrecting Hitler and him manipulating people with a hate ray. And yet, given everything we've just been through politically, stupidly relevant. And I hate that it's relevant because it just it's not so much that that story was good. It's more like our reality has become like a comic book in ways that are infuriating because it shouldn't be that way. Anyway, that's a little divergence into <laughs> politics but uh but yeah i was like yeah remembering that hate monger story and how like overt it is and like dumb it is and yet how stupidly stupidly relevant it is made me kind mm -hmm. of moved and angry but who do we think this radio serial was for then is it for fantastic four fans or is it for uh, a new audience i think it was for well i mean anna could probably answer this better because i imagine it comes up in the in the um interview she read but I, it seems like it was a, let's fling it on the wall and hope someone, we find an audience. <laughs> I think it was probably partly that, but the impression I got was the idea was that it would have a college student kind of audience mm. that, mm -hmm. you know, they were going to try to cash in on that cachet that Marvel Comics had with sort of college students around that time. In one of the interviews I read that was, or no, it was actually a radio interview I listened to that was Stanley talking a little bit about about the show and they mentioned in that interview you know the usual comics aren't for kids anymore they're being taught in university classrooms also the fantastic four radio show was kind of mentioned in terms of that conversation all right uh let's talk performance uh one of the differences when you translate into an audio medium over the comic book is that now we have actors and performances. What do you think about, we talked a little bit about this already, but what do you think about what the voice performers bring to these roles? Again, do we just want to start with Fantastic Four? It just yes. seems like how yeah. it's bad, and then we'll talk about how Wolverine is good. Yeah, okay, the villain voices, I just like, <sighs> what is that name or voice? That was the one thing that Stan Lee mentioned that he was unsatisfied with with this production it was like bella lugosa voice for namor is really mm -hmm. incorrect <laughs> <laughs> but it was almost weirder for puppet master for me because i was like okay well namor is an exotic foreigner you know that's in quotes you know like so i mean maybe but he also has to be a convincing kind of 
seducer and just that card very it, like when i say like bella lugosi voice i mean like a cartoony version of that like not mm-hmm. a seductive voice at all it was just really wrong for namor but puppet master where i'm like puppet master is definitely like a brooklynite or a new yorker giving him that voice is just and then alicia doesn't have that voice so it like yeah. really made no sense <laughs> oh it drives home the fact that she's his stepdaughter yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, it was yes. deliberately. See, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of the villains just have like such distorted voices. It's really hard to understand them. Yeah, or distorted sound effects behind them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sound effects were tough. They I were mean, yeah. 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 The Bill and Murray, wow. though, like, what the heck? That was. <laughs> that was amazing. I think. I think the thing that was distracting with the voices. I think everybody sounded super professional in terms of the main cast but mm-hmm. i feel like everybody was operating in a not everybody but some people were operating in different genres like the guy voicing mr fantastic had such a radio show voice mm-hmm. and then there's bill murray just being bill murray and it was really jarring it's just like they're not existing in the same narrative universe yeah the only time the bill murray narrative nar- narration like felt like the human torch to me is when he's like needling the thing that gets a little closer because it's they sink a bit more, but otherwise, eh. yeah. I think with the Fantastic Four. One thing I was kind of contemplating. I don't know if it's like a just a time period thing where we're you know the acting was different back then, but I kind of felt like a lot of the voice actors were extremely conscious of the fact that they were reading a comic book. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and sort of hamming it up a little bit. And maybe that suits Lee's narration, or maybe that's just kind of how it was back at that time period, but I, I found that a little alienating. It does drive home something that like surprised me that Lee is comparatively restrained here. Yeah, he was into his more later think. performances. I, I really well, yeah, liked him as the narrator. It makes me think about that story about him coming in with the nasal spray, which is such a tragic <laughs> story. And I sort of really felt for him there. You know, he's so self-conscious about his nasal voice, which has, you know, become his trademark voice now. Mm-hmm. But I mean, in 1975, he wasn't kind of the media mogul that he would become, right? I mean, this was one of the earlier examples of him kind of being prominently out there as himself, his voice. I mean, not the first one, but still it's a lot different point in his career than, you know, doing the cameos on the Marvel movies of the 21st century. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think that you're absolutely right that it is sort of reaching for, you know, that earlier era of serial dramas, you know, like superman like radio show or something of an earlier era i do think it's trying to mortgage that feel a little bit which again just sort of gets to questions about why it's a problem and who is this actually going to appeal to you know is it supposed to appeal to people now is it like a retro nostalgia thing like what is this kind of going for do you want to say about what wolverine does significantly better in terms of voice work and acting well i think the the first thing i will say is i'm actually not 100 percent on board with armitage's performance yeah um I don't love this actor in general. I thought he was overdoing it in The Hobbit as well. Not that there's, you know, a lot to admire in the performances or the execution of that <laughs> that, that trilogy, but he bugged me. Uh, I, I thought he was doing Viggo Mortensen's Aragorn, but at 11, uh, in a way that I didn't enjoy, because uh, I, I really like the subtlety of Tolkien's work. Um, here, I think he's, I don't know. I mean, the natural comparison is to Hugh Jackman who has his body to perform with, right? Uh, and as a result of that, massive advantage. But but Jackman's a singer. He's a vocalist. He, mm-hmm. he, he does really good things with his voice in that, that X-Men series as well. And there's a, there's a little bit of a subtlety to it at times that I don't think Armitage has. I think Armitage is just going to growl at you. I heard a little bit of the um, Jackman, a little bit of even the 90s cartoon kind of voice. But... The problem is neither of those fully fits the story being told here, I don't think. Yeah. Like, this is not the story that the Wolverine from the X-Men movies would be in, in the same way. It It's more, well, I mean, I haven't seen Logan, maybe, or Old Man Logan, maybe that's a different thing, but it just didn't fit in that level for me. Well, I was just going to say to what Michael was saying, like, I think Logan is a really good example of where Jackman is able to get vulnerability and weariness into Logan's voice. And I think that um, attribute would be well served here. Um, And I don't, I don't, I don't locate it. Mm -hmm. 
But I mean, don't you think he has to overact with his voice to get the visual of Wolverine across? And that kind of gets us back to that conversation about, I mean, because you just said, Andrew, like Jackman has his body to act with. If it was just his voice recorded, would he get the essence of Wolverine across? Like, I don't really think so. Oh, I mean, besides that, though, I mean... I don't know. I just have this fundamental question of Wolverine is this ridiculous, ridiculous character. I think every voice choice for him is wrong. I almost think every live action choice for him is wrong. We bought into Hugh Jackman as him because Hugh Jackman is just so utterly charming. Where, But, you know, I mean, I saw the X-Men movies before I read X-Men comics. I mean, I saw those movies as a teenager. And I mean... That wasn't comic book Wolverine. That was Hugh Jackman Wolverine. And we've become Mm -hmm. used to that version of Wolverine. And it's been incorporated sort of backwards into the comics in a little. So I don't know. I don't know what the version of Wolverine I'd be expecting from a text like this. But I think it's an interesting question of like, is there a voice for Wolverine that's not ridiculous? And I kind of think the answer for me is no. (laughs) Well, I mean, for me, the quintessential Wolverine visual is the whole like Madripoor patch persona like it's a guy with an eye patch a white suit and that hair and he thinks he's being sneaky i know i know <laughs> patch I, so good for me i think it's a question of extremes i i completely agree with what anna's saying um i i do think it could be better i i think it could be more nuanced and i think the role is written with the capacity to do that in the hands of an actor who was reaching for that. But as a counterpoint to my own argument, I will point to my own voice acting skills at the start of this podcast. (laughs) And I therefore have nothing else to say. Well, what did Uh, we think about the other voice actors in it? Pretty good. I would say, I would say they had Mm -hmm. a pretty good, well-rounded cast. I liked the interplay between the two investigators, you know, they had that, like they like work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They worked in like some fun dynamics with them. Like he's clearly like hoping, I'm mean, not that he's like flirting with her, but they have like a thing going. I have to romanticize everything, but you know, they had that, you know, he like is asking her to like, look at the scenery and she's just like, no, I want to do the mission and everything. And, like, yeah. Well, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting setup that like virtually everything we see is, and here is, well, just here, just here. Everything we hear is filtered through them because they virtually every scene is something they either encounter or are surveilling or being told and it like ultimately their relationship is kind of more the narrative like it's the narrative high point of the series more than wolverine arguably yeah i mean it reminded me a little bit more of like how you would do I mean, a really good audio drama could be something like Gotham Central, right? Which is mm, sort of yeah. what we're getting here only as a Wolverine story because the focus is on the investigators. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I really liked, this isn't, you know, I don't want to get off topic, but I, I mean, I was just thinking in terms of, because it relates to the interplay between those two characters, but you know, the way that it didn't tell the story completely linearly, you know, like it did some like more creative things with like, let's get the exposition done here by going back to the hotel room that they're sharing and then have them listen to the interview that they recorded and not just like proceed in a linear fashion, like of right. them hearing the interview. Like they did things like that to keep it interesting and stuff, which is, you know, textbook stuff if you're trying to do like a good radio play, radio drama, but was still really well done. I thought. It did put me a little in the mind of like the kind of Bioshock or Deus Ex video game thing, which is that uh, people for some reason have decided to get really big into audio recordings of themselves and just leaving them in places. Uh, I, I think the worst case of this is the monologue of Wolverine on the phone at the end of episode two. Oh, that but... was so annoying. God, <laughs> I hated that. But yeah, it, it as, as kind of a found footage approach, it helps make things a little more naturalistic. And can we talk about how typically irritating that Bob Balaban was with his smarminess? I mean, (laughs) my thing about Bob Balaban is just that, like, he does that smarmy character so well that I actually, like, hate him as a result. He's, like, too good in that role. And, like, (laughs) goddammit, just want to bring that guy down. 
No, I, I agree. I don't, <laughs> I don't have any. He's, he's such a typical ATM villain, such an ATM yeah. villain where you're like, yeah, exactly. and like he wouldn't have been playing that role in the 80s, ironically, but, you know, still like that guy that, you know, runs the town and you know he's bad news when you find out that a certain guy runs a small town. That's oh. always what happens in an ATM episode, always. Mm-hmm. And then they always end up going in a pickup truck to beat up the ATM and then the ATM have to turn a pickup truck, truck into a tank to go and fight the guys and... I know, I know how this story goes. Well, yeah. actually, this relates. Uh, well, in, on the subject of him running the town and what happens to him and so forth, this reminded me of something I wanted to kind of jump back to. That is like, it the Patrick Swayze movie Roadhouse? <laughs> <laughs> Please, let's talk well, about throat punching. Yes, <laughs> I want to jump back to Roadhouse. Uh, no, um, just the concept of like heroism in this story that Wolverine is arguably. Not very effective. Well, not he isn't very effective as a hero. The villain here yeah. is killed through his through means that would have happened anyway, whether Wolverine was there or not. Yeah. And his final choice is to kind of make a deal with bad guys that will result in things being a lot worse for some people. <laughs> well, that sounds like Wolverine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like I think the real villain, <laughs> which sounds oh, melodramatic, yeah. is the town, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the culture and community in that town and it gets off real easy at the end of this maybe they'll do better without yeah fingers crossed um anyone else we want to flag in terms of performances i think a lot of them were kind of broad character types but yeah. did well as broad character types uh the sheriff the kind of deputy the prophet I mean, that prophet guy was yeah. creepy as hell, but I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely tropey. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing was very, I, I have to assume the, the tropiness of it is just, again, that idea of trying to work off archetypes in order mm-hmm. to establish things that are hard to establish in radio. It's funny though, because that does get back to those adaptation questions and, you know, who is a audio adaptation for because it's relying on like if it's relying on like our visual memory of what these things look like then you're like well so this is like an audio thing for a sighted audience or it's not and i don't know i don't have answers to those questions but i think that they're interesting questions to think about when you're thinking about what are you adapting adapting and how and why but again i don't really have answers so much as more questions Okay, this is like a dumb comic book person question, but like, is this story like set in any kind? Like, what era is this supposed to be? And like, does that matter? And am I just being a bad comic book person for asking these questions? I mean, it fits mostly in the Weapon X era, if anywhere. Mm -hmm. But also there are Sentinels, Prime Sentinels, basically. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, according to the creators, it's a non-canonical story. Um, that obviously is riffing on canon. Um, so it, it's it's basically like Wolverine detached. It's, a, it's yeah. an all new Wolverine universe. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of Wolverine stories are like that, but I just, I don't know, I was joking with you guys before. I just couldn't stop giggling at the idea of like a ridiculous version of Nightcrawler showing up and being like, <laughs> hey, Logan, are you done? I, I can't do a, a Nightcrawler voice. I'm not even trying. <laughs> But it'd be so funny if I could. But, you know, like, hey, Logan, are you done with your vacation? What are you doing up here? It's Kitty's birthday on Friday. Are you going to be home? She'll be sad if you're not there. Come on. Anyway, when you're done, like, give us a call. I've got the jet just out back. Because it's it's so funny, like, Wolverine being out and being this grizzled loner. And I was like, he has all these friends that, like, live at a house where he's welcome to be at any time. But he can't be there for reasons. (laughs) Yeah, just a minute. Just a minute, Nightcrawler. I'm working with these kids to plant a bomb at this loggers camp. (laughs) Just like i don't know like it doesn't matter it's just i had like a funny like reaction to like wanting to have some of the levity of other types of x-men stories just make a sudden appearance in the story when they mentioned new orleans i was like oh my god is gambit gonna be in this story that would up the ridiculousness factor of the story cajun Uh, accent would play on radio though (laughs) it would be so good anyway yeah that was just my my two cents observation i don't think that detracts from the story at all Season two is in New Orleans, so that's got to come up. Well, not Gambit, but like that accent has to come up, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that accent. It's just, I think, if you're thinking about how are you, anyway, Gambit. Yeah, how are you a, adapting? Yeah, yeah, he's had a, a checkered history of that, of that accent being adapted. We can go back to the, <laughs> the X-Men, the animated series. Yeah. 
We've talked a little bit around this issue, but to kind of draw things out with a bigger picture, how do you think these works fit with the Marvel of its era as a piece of multimedia in relation to these superhero comics? Do you think this kind of audio form has a future for this? Or are there particular potentials that lie untapped with like specific stories, superhero or other comic-wise related? I could really see a Jessica Jones audio drama working well for whatever yeah. that's worth. I sure, mean, if I think about other style. Marvel characters, yeah, like that would really work well. I think she would actually work better than Wolverine. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it depends on what the audience is and stuff. I don't see this becoming like a huge thing, but I don't know. What do you think, Andrew? Um, I, okay, so I think in some ways the Fantastic Four serials failure sent the message that we're not doing this anymore. <laughs> But I think we have to acknowledge that the Wolverine series success as like a popular artifact and as a critically acclaimed artifact suggests that there's potential here. Um, so I think there's something to be cultivated. I think there's a lot of things that need to be ironed out uh, and, you know, um, developed as it goes along. But I mean, this is their first podcast and it it, it hit um, mm-hmm. to me that that says something the same way that, you know, when the first Iron Man movie hit, everybody was like, well, maybe Marvel's on to something. So I'm hopeful, I guess, is what I'm saying. Uh, and I, I do think that there are ways in which an auditory-only format um, can bring out new aspects of the superhero genre that I'd be intrigued to see played with to a further degree. I agree with you, and yet I have a really hard time imagining how the audio format would really translate what still feels like the heart of the Marvel Universe, which is, you know, campiness and excess and self-reflexivity so much of which plays out on the visual level because i mean this story works because they effectively did like a true crime story that happened to feature wolverine Mm -hmm. like that's why i think we're having trouble thinking about what other characters could work with that because there just isn't an obvious reference point for like what is a superhero in it i think i mean it's not there there have been radio dramas of superheroes since the beginning of superheroes i'm very aware of that but it's just superheroes are so visual and it's a hard conversation for me in terms of, is this going to be a dominant, you know, or like, you know, just a a larger mode of production. And again, I I really want to differentiate again, like between, I'm not saying that like you can't or shouldn't be adapting things for visually impaired readers or something. Cause I, again, that's a, that's a bigger conversation, but in terms of whether this kind of adaptation is going to be popular with sighted readers. I, I don't know that I believe that that will be true outside of some isolated examples like this one, because there's only so many Marvel stories that I think could work in that well, format. It's... I mean, I could imagine a comedy one though. Like I could totally oh, imagine like, you know, like a Howard the Duck oh. one or a Deadpool one yes. or something, just like leaning into the comedy of it. Not, That's the other Deadpool. one that I could imagine working. <laughs> Maybe not Deadpool. I don't know, but like another self-reflexive like, character. This is super violent. Um, yeah. Yeah. It might work. It strikes me that this is one of the earliest examples of modern transmedia Marvel doing something really episodic. Like deep, DC has a really expansive uh, episodic TV universe at this point, multiple universes, uh, all of which I have virtually no experience with. But um, maybe the question on whether this gets iterated or not, part of that is in line with, well, with back to WandaVision, the idea of like, what can we, now that the cinematic Marvel superheroes are almost are pretty much the best known publicly versions of that. How do we take that idea and put it into something serial? What does that look like or sound like? Sorry, Michael, are you suggesting how do you build a cohesive Marvel auditory universe? Is that what you're thinking? Well, more like the question of whether we will do this or not depends more on how accepting audiences are of the Marvel cinematic in serial form. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, uh, I see what you're Yeah. I thought you were also sort of bringing up the point that like maybe there's an appeal to having this isolated Wolverine story existing in this audio medium as its own thing, not connected to the larger Marvel universe in any big or major or even direct way. Because Marvel has been doing so much interconnecting of its properties, and that can be a little bit exhausting. You're just like, oh, can I watch WandaVision if I haven't watched all of the previous things? And just being able to dive into this Wolverine thing where if you have any passing familiarity with Wolverine, you can enjoy this story. 
I mean, I think that there's potential in terms of that. I mean, we were talking off mic about the new deal with Penguin as a distributor and how that's going to affect the traditional audience of comics. I mean, you can see there being sort of a push towards attracting more casual listeners or readers or viewers. And I could see this being part of that. Yeah. Anything else anyone wants to address, I guess? Uh, Last thoughts. One small point related to what Anna was saying. Um, the plot twist at, in the epilogue to the Wolverine thing, it mm-hmm. does kind of accidentally imply a much more advanced X-Men universe, right? The the fact that Sentinels exist in this world suggests that the mutant thing is very much a thing, um, but we don't really get strong glimpses of that. Yeah. I mean, God, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'd give an X-Men audio thing like a chance. I'm not sure. I... Do we want to relate it to other kind of non-traditional adaptations, like in terms of, because I think superhero novels are an Mm. interesting comparison point, because some of those are interesting, many of those are not interesting, and they often have (laughs) trouble kind of adapting the things that superhero comics do particularly, particularly well, which is like dynamic, excessive visuals. And the books end up being a little bit sort of plot oriented in ways that don't capture a lot of that dynamism i mean is that a meaningful comparison to think about to think about in terms of adaptation because i think that that's more similar like i think going from comics to audio is more similar comics to books than it is like comics to film i would agree with that yeah for sure um there was a paper i read on just before this started uh literally i was typing out my notes on it while we were talking or while we were setting up uh McMurdy wrote on this, on Wolverine the Long Night, and she argues that uh, the closure of the radio medium fits well with the kind of closure that Scott McCloud talks about. And in that sense, the adaptation works really well. Um, I think you can make a connection there to the kind of things that prose asks us to do as well in terms of kind of pulling the imagination and visual along with us yeah i think i i I get that argument about the closure with the audio medium and i think that you know again some of the some of the audio versions you know like the the daredevil um audio thing that was meant more to be sort of you know again something that can appeal to visually impaired readers and sort of adapting a lot of techniques from comic books and trying to come up with an audio language to represent those visual techniques like was very doing that quite deliberately, but I mean, that's mm-hmm. always going to be present in this medium as well. I, I take that point. I think there's a, an aspect of writing too. And I think we've already touched upon this, that that's really relevant to the auditory format. Like one of the, the books, superhero books that, that worked very well, I thought was, um, I think it's called the Spider-Man, the darkest hour. Uh, and, and the reason for me it worked was because Spider-Man has a very distinctive internal monologue that you can capture in text and could likewise capture in radio very effectively, just as we were all kind of arguing that maybe, I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone, but like, I I think my favorite part of the Fantastic Four radio serial was capturing Stan Lee's prose uh, and hearing it in Stan Lee's voice. Uh, And again, the Kirby absence was infuriating, but I thought that typical Stan Lee style translated very well to radio. Um, So I, I think again, the right character with a distinctive voice that can be translated to audio, I think can work, uh, which is why, again, I think like Deadpool or Squirrel Girl um, are examples of potential properties that could, that could make this happen. With that, we're going to draw our discussion to a close. And as per our habit, we will end with a recommendation. The recommendation prompt for this week is a uh, some other podcasts that we'd recommend. Let's let's keep it on the uh, audio medium for now. I struggled a little bit with this one because, in the sense that virtually any podcast that I listen to probably doesn't really need our plug, but uh, in comics, my the ones that I listen to most regularly are. House to Astonish, and uh, Wait What, so I'll recommend those. And if you want something that's a different, uh, Teen Creeps, a podcast where they review (laughs) 90s young adult thriller novels.
Uh, I will go with the podcast that definitely doesn't need any additional press, um, but but related to this one is Serial, uh, which is um, an investigative journalist look at um, sort of a, a community embroiled in a murder investigation, which I think, I don't know, creates a really cool kind of contrast to this Wolverine one that I was constantly keeping it sort of the, the back of my brain as I was listening. I kind of forgot that we were doing audio recommendations because I have a really good <laughs> novel recommendation that I thought would be relevant to today's recording. But I will do a little bit of self-pro um, because it involves everybody on the podcast, which is that I am involved with a new podcast called the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, which is doing a issue-by-issue read-through of the classic Marvel comic series Excalibur. So that's the one from 1988 to 1998 featuring Kitty Pride and Nightcrawler and Megan and Captain Britain and Rachel Summers, among others. And Andrew is also involved with that podcast, and Michael will be coming on as a guest. And you don't have to have read Excalibur before to listen to the podcast. It's weekly, so it's ideally situated for you to read along if you would like to read along. And if you haven't read it for a number of years, we try to provide some context as well. And We've been having a good time with it. And I think if you enjoy this pod, you mm-hmm. would enjoy that one as well. But my other recommendation is an X-Men novel by Marjorie Liu called X-Men Dark Mirror. And it is, for my money, one of the greatest novels of all time and certainly one of my wow. favorite X-Men stories of all time. All of the X-Men switch bodies with regular human people who are at an psychiatric institution um and it is a wonderful road trip novel in which they all have to exist in these alternate bodies and find their way back to the x mansion and figure out what the people who have stolen their bodies are up to and everybody switches with the body that would be the most meaningful or hilarious and it's really really well done body swapping stories are always politically complicated i think this one handles those politics with as much nuance as any other body swapping story that i've read and if you haven't checked out that story i would strongly encourage you to do so oh gosh oh golly oh wow listen to it today next time we will be looking at Anne Nesenti and Don Perlman's Beauty and the Beast, as well as Engelhart and Howell's Vision and Scarlet Witch Volume 2.